The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Morning, Love City. Amen. Well, uh, if this is your church family, then you know what I'm here for. If not, I'll let you know real quick. I'm Pastor Vince, and uh, I just jumped up here to teach the Bible, and I'm ready to rumble. How about you guys? All right, let's do it. So if you have a Bible with you, I'll turn to Mark chapter 12. We're busting into Mark 12 today. Look at verses 1 through 27. Don't panic. I know that's a lot of verses, but we're going to make it. It's going to be all right. Amen. All right, so we're continuing in our series, uh, Servant King, working through the book of Mark, verse by verse. I've been having a great time. I hope you have too. Uh, Today, we are going to see one of the most epic verbal wrestling matches in the history of the world. I mean that. The action here is better than anything you would ever see from the WWE. I know there's a couple brothers in here that enjoy the WWE, so this sermon's for you, all right? Love you guys. Praying for you too. <laughs> I'm just kidding, my friends. Uh, so this this wrestling match, this verbal conflict, it really started in verse 27 from chapter 11 when Jesus he pulls this sweet reversal on the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Uh, Brother Andrew handled that for us last week, and and we have a lot to cover today. So if you missed that, go back and check it out. At least go back and read those verses and put them together. With this, you know, the chapters in the Bible aren't necessarily inspired. I'm not saying it's wrong that it broke here, but it does cut this conversation up a little bit weird. So it's all right, though. We're going to work through it. I do want to say, I got to tell you guys, Brother Andrew got me last week when I watched the live stream. Uh, He was talking about the fig tree that withered. You guys remember that? And he said this He said, Jesus cursed the tree because it was alive, but not giving life. Yeah, buddy, that's deep right there. I hope somebody in here shouted amen when he said that. You represented correctly, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> hope that's not an indicator how today's about to go. Amen. So, so the first group of chief priests and scribes, they, they stepped in the ring with Jesus at the end of chapter 11, and, and he showed pretty quickly that they were writing checks with their mouth that they didn't have the courage to cash. I saw some people look up. Do you think I was going to say something different? (laughs) No, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, So today what we're going to see is several different groups of religious and political leaders who normally despised each other. They're going to show up to this grudge match and they're going to put aside their differences in order to try to tag team Jesus and take him out. Okay, so that's what we're looking at. Let's read this together and we're going to see who comes out as king of the ring. All right, so... Mark 12, starting in verse 1, here we go. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, He sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so, with many others, beating some and killing others, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him and yet they feared the people for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? 
But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife, leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Praise God for his word. All right, verses 1 through 12, let's work with the parable first, okay? First of all, we need to know, and it kind of lets us, it lets us into this towards the end of these 12 verses, because it says they knew he spoke the parable against them. So this might be a little hard for us to piece together, but it wasn't, it wasn't for the guys hearing it. They would have been very familiar with Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, and you jot that down, look at it later if you want, but that's a prophecy with a lot of parallel to what Jesus says here. So what was obvious to them, that being the ones that Jesus was uh, correcting here, it may not be as clear to us. You know, some of Christ's parables were tough to understand, but really this one's pretty straightforward. I'll break it down for you. Okay, so we have a vineyard, right? The vineyard is Israel, the nation that God cultivated, starting with Abraham in order to bring the fruit of salvation to the world, okay? The vine growers in this parable are the, are the religious leaders that he's talking to, who somehow got the idea in their head that they could take ownership of the vineyard. That's not going to work, right? The, th- the, the three slaves that are specifically talked about and then, and then the rest, they represent the prophets of God that had been rejected in the past by Israel, who had come giving warnings, calling for repentance, Okay. Now, I, I do want to say real quick here, because in reading this again, it made me kind of wonder, the Bible doesn't give us exact accounts of what Jesus is referring to here in terms of, especially the death of, of certain prophets. And I, I was thinking about, well, why is that? But the light bulb went off. It makes sense that we don't have that because the prophets could not have recorded their own deaths, right? And they were the ones that wrote the book. So, hello. Maybe you already had that figured out, but I just figured I'd put it out there. Maybe someone else. That's helpful. Uh, but we do see, we do see a, a hint from Jesus in Matthew 23 uh, and, and something from Hebrews. I'll, I'll just give this to you quickly. Matthew 23, uh, 35, Jesus says, So that upon you will fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So Jesus is apparently aware of Zechariah being murdered Okay, uh, by those, you know, the descendants probably of those who he's <clears throat> wrestling with now. Uh, there are also several historical references to Isaiah being sawed in half, particularly like putting in a sack and stuck in a hollow log and then sawing him in half, which is a major bummer, right? Uh, but I do want to say that's not recorded in Scripture, so, so we don't know that for sure. There's external historical sources. There's a lot of them, but, you know, we're just not sure. So, but it, it seems like maybe the writer of Hebrews was aware of, of something. He doesn't say Isaiah specifically, but in Hebrews eleven thirty seven, talking about followers of God from the Old Testament, the faithful, he says, some were stoned, some were sawed in half, others killed by the sword. Okay? So there's a little bit of a thread there we can pull on. It's not, it's not super important. I just, I just know as I was reading this again, I thought, you know, where is this case where the descendants of this religious leader are, are, are rejecting and killing the prophets of God? So... That's clear. And at the end of the day, Jesus said it, so I'm good on it, right? Like, everyone with me on that? Okay, two of you are good. If Jesus said it, I'm good with it. You're good with that too, right? Okay, good, because he like knows what he's talking about and such, right? Amen. Okay. Woo! All right. Uh, 
So the son, that's, that's who the slaves were. The son is Jesus, which this also marks a turn in the parable from past events to a look at what is to come. Okay, Because he talks about the son coming and then being rejected and murdered by the vine dressers. So in verses 10 and 11, Jesus refers to Psalm 18. What is 10 and 11? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so this is, he's referring to Psalm 118. That is, if you'll remember from a couple weeks ago, the same messianic psalm that those who were crying Hosanna during the triumphal entry were referring to. Okay? So what, so who are the others that this talks about that the vineyard's going to be given to? Because what does he say? He says, so, what, so what's the owner going to do? He's going to show up. He's going to deal with the vine dressers, and he's going to give the vineyard to others. What does that mean? Well, Peter later uses the same reference in 1 Peter 2, pointing us to the others being talked about here as the church. And what do I mean by the church? I mean those who trust in Jesus for salvation. As the structure built upon this cornerstone that has been rejected. Let me read you this from 1 Peter 2. You also, those of you who have trusted in Christ, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen, church? Amen. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for unbelievers, a stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And so we see Peter tying this imagery of Jesus as a cornerstone, that this cornerstone is being set as the foundation of a building, that building being the church. Okay? And, by the way, this is one of the reasons I think Mel Gibson messed up when he cast James Caviezel as Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. I personally think it should have been Dwayne Johnson. I don't care what you think about it. That's what I think. I'm sticking to it. Amen? The Rock, right? Some of you at this point are wondering, how far can he carry this wrestling analogy to watch me? It's going the whole way, baby. (laughs) <laughs> I do like Dwayne Johnson. Ask Natalie about it. She'll make fun of me with you about it. It's fine. It's okay. So the religious leaders know, okay, they know, we're told they know, they just got smacked down by the Lord here, so they decide to take a break from the match and regroup. Where do we see that? Verse 12, they were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left him and went away, okay? So what, did they, did they realize, oh man, we better just, just leave him alone altogether. All no, that's not what they did. They basically tucked their tails and run back to the locker room to try to tag in somebody else to come take a shot at the champ. Okay, so now we get another group of guys coming. Who's this? Okay, verses 13 through 17 again. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Okay, <laughs> first up, after this, the chief priests and the scribes, they, they, they have their chance. doesn't go well for them. Now we have this unlikely team of the Pharisees and the Herodians, okay? The Pharisees were a group that liked to make up lots of rules and tell people, God's not going to love you if you don't follow our rules, okay? Uh, The Herodians were fanboys for the Herod dynasty, which, if you're not familiar, was a super dysfunctional family that ruled over this area, but but they got their authority from sucking up to the Romans, basically, Okay, so you'll see different Herods referenced, you know, starting from the birth of Christ up through Acts. It, it, it's actually quite confusing. I'm not going to take the time here to like untangle it all. But if you got a good study Bible, you probably figure that out and get your bearings there. So, but the the Herods were a dynasty; they're a family. Okay, and uh, these Herodians, they really they they liked them, and and they they saw their ticket to being able to stay in whatever little bit of power they felt like they had. In, in Hitching their cart to the, the Herods, okay? Like, so, but here, that's part of why they didn't like Jesus, because Jesus was shaking stuff up. And, and one of the Herods had been deposed by Rome, and an, another Roman governor put in because there was unrest, right? So they, they're thinking Jesus is going to cause problems for the Herods, which is going to cause problems for us, all right? So, but normally, the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other, okay? 
They did not like each other. The, the, the fact that the, Rome, the Roman presence in Israel, their oppression of Israel, was an affront to the Pharisees. Okay? They hated these guys. But, isn't it funny, their hate for Jesus, right? Enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. They're willing to hook up here and, and try to become this perfect duo to set a verbal trap for Jesus. How do they start? They start with, teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. You guys think this flattery buttered Jesus up and had him put his defenses down? You think they got him with that? So sneaky, right? No, man. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates, hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Okay? Just because someone says nice stuff to you <laughs> doesn't mean you can trust them. Okay? That's clearly what's going on here. So, so their big question uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar, right? And, and what does Jesus do? Well, first of all, he says, why? guys, why are you testing me? Did, did you not see how it just went with those guys? All right, let's, let's do this. Bring me a denarius, okay? The denarius was about a day's wages for an agricultural laborer. Also, interestingly, as best we can tell, and it is thought widely that, that this coin in particular would have had the image of Tiberius, who was Caesar at that point. I don't know if you think Caesar's a name. I know it's a salad dressing. It's pretty good. But Caesar was like, it was a, like emperor. Caesar was a term of nobility. Okay, so uh, Tiberius was Caesar at this point. And so it had his image on the front. And on the back, it had this, this uh, inscription, Pontificus Maximus, which meant, Pontifex Maximus, which meant the greatest priest. Okay, so again, the Pharisees really wouldn't like this. Okay, they shouldn't like this because it's basically what, what that saying is that the Caesar of the time was now the great high priest for everyone under their rule. Okay, is someone who's committed to serving the one true God of Israel going to be happy with that? Well, they shouldn't be, right? Right, okay. So let's. Let's look at the brilliance of Jesus' answer. And why were they the perfect duo, and why was this such a potentially effective trap? Okay, Here's the dynamics. <clears throat> the Pharisees are there asking Jesus whether or not they should pay taxes. They know that if he says, yes, you should pay taxes, that all of the, the people of Israel that are following him, excited about him, that they feel like they're losing their power to him, those people... Do not like paying taxes to Caesar. They, it, it's, it's a constant reminder of their subjugation, okay? And they, a lot, most of them are doing it just because they know they can't beat the Romans, but they hate it. And if Jesus is to say, yes, what, what God expects is for you to pay that tax, he's going to lose favor with the people. So the Pharisees are set up on that side of this thing. The Herodians, on the other hand, are there to hear if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes. Caesar has no real rule over us. He's not divine as he thinks he is, right? And if he says that, then the Herodians can run to their buddies in the Roman government and say, hey, this guy Jesus, guess what? He's telling people not to pay taxes. So, so what they're trying to do, and it, it, you know, it looks like a good setup. It looks like maybe this, this team, this tag team can get him, okay? <laughs> but they can't, okay? Let me show you the brilliance of Christ's answer here, okay? So he says, bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. They brought him one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. The guys that came to try to trap him, they ended this thing like, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> we're going to have to regroup, because <laughs> we thought we had you. Okay, And why is that such a brilliant answer? Well, first of all, what it does, and him bringing that coin into the picture, it, it, it has this connotation of, look, if, you, if you're using these coins, then you are, you're a part of that system. Okay, And if you're a part of that system, you're benefiting from the structures of that system, then you need to go ahead and, and pay that tax, sure. But he calls their attention to this greater truth, right? Because he, he asked specifically whose image is on the coin, but inferred here, and they knew it, was also the question, because what does he say? Give to God what is God's. When, when the question of do we pay taxes is brought up, what does Jesus go to? Well, whose image is on it? Whose image is on the coin? And so inferred is also another question, whose image is on you? And that's 
how he sidestepped the trap and left them mouth wide open. Brilliant. And this is not the only time he's done this to groups trying to trap him, but uh, it's awesome. Okay. <laughs> so, so the Pharisees and the Herodians combined, tried to hem Jesus up and pin him down, but Jesus ended up putting all of them, by, with this answer, he puts them in a philosophical full Nelson, and they knew they had to tap out. So now they go, they go away. All right, we, tr- we tried, guys. That was the best shot we had. We're coming out. We're going to hit him with the tax question. Didn't work. So now what? Now what's going to happen? <laughs> we're gonna, we got to go, we gotta go try to get the heaviest hitters we got. Let's go get the Sadducees. If anybody's going to get him, it'll be them. If anybody's going to embarrass him public, publicly here and try to reduce his influence, the Sadducees will be able to do it. Well, why? Well, we know very little about the Sadducees compared to the Pharisees because none of their own writings, the writings of the Sadducees, survived into modern times. But we do know some things from the scriptures, but also from the writings of others uh, about the Sadducees, okay? So we know that they were a wealthy class of religious leaders who saw themselves as the cultural elite, and that's how many others saw them. They were likely the most educated of all of this bunch trying to come at Jesus. Uh, And they were thought by many, including themselves, to be the premier experts in the five books of Moses. Which, by the way, were the only ones they believed were scripture. So everything after the Pentateuch, they rejected. Said that's not scripture. we're, We're only down with the books of Moses, okay? That's important. That's going to come up again. Uh, As I explained in a previous sermon, if you remember, they were also theologically liberal and and kind of naturalistic in their worldview. It's said by many scholars that this group also did not believe in, we're told here in the scriptures plainly they don't believe in resurrection, but there's many that say they also didn't believe in angels, which is interesting because of where Jesus goes. Uh, the, the point here, and what I'm giving you all this, is not to give you a master class on who the Sadducees were. I just want to give you enough info to see how skillful and funny Jesus is here. Okay? <laughs> it's awesome. So, as this verbal wrestling match of the ages escalates, it's, it's like we can see Jesus here giving a clinic on how to deal with bullies who think that they're tough. This is what, 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 how Jesus responds to them is the verbal equivalent of Jesus getting up on the top rope and bringing down the Hebrew people's elbow, all right, on these smug Sadducees. And, and here's the other thing I want you to see this, this whole deal, right, this riddle, that's really what it is. It's a riddle to try to stump him about a wife with seven husbands, you know, each one dies, no child is born. Let me quickly, that's strange to our ears, let me just quickly say what that's about. So there was, there was a concession in the Old Testament for a family where if the father died and there was no son to be the heir to continue on the name, there was a provision where a brother-in-law who's unmarried could marry that wife and, and a, a son could be bore and then be the heir of his dead brother. It was a way for legacy to continue, okay? Which was, which was important. So... <clears throat> Amen. So uh, that's, that's what's going on here. That's what, he's refer- that's what they're referring to. In tr- but they bring that to try to <laughs> hem Jesus up here. Their real point is not even about marriage. It's not about that. It's about resurrection. They're trying to use this example to make it ridiculous, make it look ridiculous to believe in resurrection, right? Because that's what they do. So the guy, the first guy dies on down all the way through the seven. Well, if people are actually resurrected then, well, whose wife would she be? Because she was married to all seven. Right? They think they got it. That's, that's, that, this, is, this is what they're coming with, okay? This is about resurrection, okay? So how does, Je- how does Jesus masterfully, and I, I would say in a very funny way, deal with them? Well, first of all, uh, let's, well, let's, just, let's just look at it. Let's, re- let's read it again real quick. So, <clears throat> some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to Jesus. I'm in 18. Uh, and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving 
behind no children. The third likewise. And so all seven left, uh, no children. Last of all, the woman died also. So now in the resurrection, Jesus, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're mistaken? You do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? What did I tell you the Sadducees? They rejected all the rest of Scripture. What books did they think were Scripture? That's right, the book of Moses. So where does Jesus go? Come on now, he goes to Exodus, that's right. Did you not read in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, right? So why did, why did, why did that, do you understand why that punked him? At the burning bush, that's the time of Moses. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are long gone, right? They've been dead for a long time. But what does God say at that point? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. Boom! Right? Straight from Exodus. Jesus, Jesus wasn't going to go to the Psalms because he knows he's going to oh, well, the Psalms aren't scripture, Jesus. Right? Takes them right to where they can't wiggle. Man, he's so good at this. Man, this is fun. Okay. So, and, and he says, you don't understand, man. When they rise, they're not going to marry or be given in marriage. They're going to be like angels. Okay? So let's, let's sidebar for just a second. I'm not going to rabbit trail on you. I just, we need to say this, okay? This set of scriptures, I think, leads to an unfortunate misconception, and it comes up quite often, I, I think, um, especially around the, t- like, with people passing away, uh, people will say things like, um, well, God, God just needed another angel, okay? And, and I'm not trying to jump on people in grief trying to process, okay? And I don't think you should either, right? So don't, don't go repeat what I'm about to tell you if somebody, you know, deal with that later if there's an, an opening that's empathetic. Got me? Okay, good. But we, he says we're going to be like angels. He's making a point there. Okay, we don't become angels when we die. It's important to know. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, actually, do you not know that we will judge angels? Okay, so the, the children of God, right, who spend eternity with him, in, in some way, and this is, this is mysterious, it's not all fleshed out in the scriptures for us what all that exactly means, but we, we enjoy a status. Je- we, we hear throughout the scriptures Jesus telling us if we trust him and, and we receive his righteousness by grace through faith in Christ, we're going to be raised up to be seated with him to rule and reign with him. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know what all that means, <laughs> but it's awesome. And, and clearly, there's a distinction between us and angels. And in some way, we're going to enjoy a status of sonship and daughtership that's even higher than angels, right? Which is hard for us to conceptualize right now because we're goofy old humans, right? And we're like, man, <laughs> that's weird. But it's, I mean, what it should do is make us look forward with even more awe and and, and gratitude towards the eternity that God's prepared, prepared for us. Amen? So what, why does he say they'll be like the angels? He's reaching for an example of how they don't understand what's going on here. What, why does he go to the angels? Well, we know at least this. Angels don't procreate, okay? Which was one of the primary purposes for marriage that God established in Genesis. Now let me say this very carefully and very clearly to all of you. There are those who teach that because a big part of what God established marriage for in Genesis was procreation, right? Go be fruitful and multiply. That does not mean there's a biblical mandate or requirement for people who are married to have children, okay? That's something that each married couple needs to talk with themselves about and talk to God about. And there are, I think there are many whom God brings together in a marriage and has purposes for their life and for the furthering of his gospel that perhaps does not include the raising of children. So there's, there's people that get real, real uh, dogmatic about that, and I think it's harmful, and it's, it's a pitiful doctrine. Okay? Amen. All right. <clears throat> so really what he's getting at here, and part of what he says is that there's no marriage in eternity. Okay? And I want to stop also for a second and recognize, I think we should, that this bums some people out to think about. Okay? And why? Well, <clears throat> because marriage is an incredible relationship. It's a gift from God. It's, it's special among all human relationships, and thinking that that's not going to carry on into eternity is, 
For, for those of us that like still enjoy being married, it's a bummer in some ways, right? You know, if, if, you're, if you're out here sitting next to your spouse and you're thinking, sweet, I only have to make it to, I only have to make it to eternity and I'm out of this thing, just shut up and don't say anything, okay? And don't look excited right now. Look sad. And come talk to me and we'll try to help you, okay? <laughs> but, but he's saying there's, there's no marriage in eternity. And, and, and I want to recognize that that bums some people out from a relational standpoint, but also I think, you know, from a physical intimacy standpoint, people are like, man, you know, that <clears throat> eternity's a long time, right? Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, <laughs> here's, <laughs> here's what I want to say to you about it, all right? And then, I'm, so that was all funny, but I'm real serious now. <clears throat> I want just try to just try to stretch with me on this and think about it. When we are finally basking in the unveiled radiance of God's eternal glory, the ecstasy of physical intimacy will be but a pale shadow of the pleasure we will experience in his presence. And I know we're going to, right now, we're sitting in a place where we have to trust that by faith because we can't even begin to understand what it's going to be like to stand in the unveiled radiance of God's glory. But it will be better than anything you've tasted or seen or touched in this life, for sure, by an immeasurable amount, okay? And so a lot of what should come out of, you know, this, this like many passages, is one where people get distracted into, you know, a bunch of things that aren't really the point. Part of the point of this should be Jesus' teaching here, man, it, it should increase our yearning for our eternal home. It should remind us yet again that we're sojourners and aliens. We're strangers here. We're passing through. Okay? That doesn't mean that, that our time here doesn't matter. It absolutely does. We have a purpose here and a mission. We need to stay focused on that. It doesn't mean there's not joy as a gift from God in this time. There is. I'm just telling you. It's nothing. It's nothing like what's coming. We haven't seen anything yet. Amen. So Jesus identifies a summary problem in their approach, okay? And, and to me, it's so funny because it's, <laughs> it's almost like he's so relaxed in this confrontation, right? That, that he can like tell them they can do better while he's tangling with them, right? Imagine being in a wrestling match or in a fight and the other, and the other person you're wrestling with is like, no, 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 don't do it like that. Do it. No, here, let me show you. As they're wrestling you, man, like, oh, that... <laughs> If, you don't, if you're not smart enough to just say, okay, clearly uh, I bit off more than I could chew here. At that point, then I don't know how to help you. Um, but what is, what is the summary statement? What does Jesus whisper to them while they're, they're in here doing everything they can to try to pin him down? It, it's like, you know, it's this summary statement. Hey, guys, here, here's the problem. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. That's why you're coming at me like this. Okay. You, you're dealing with a God so mighty, okay? What, what does he say they don't understand? The scriptures and the power of God. And, and I think there's many who, <clears throat> I think there's many that would say, well, that's fair. Maybe, maybe they haven't experienced the power of God. Maybe you feel the same way today. Maybe you're someone that would say, well, I've never, I've never seen a miracle or I've never, I've never seen some cool like, manifestation of the power of God that I can, that I can point to. Well, this, this, will help, this will help those of us, too, that maybe have struggled with those thoughts, okay? You're dealing with a God here so mighty that he orchestrated all of redemptive history while using flawed and broken humans to accomplish his will. My encouragement to you is we all have seen miraculous manifestations of God's power, okay? Just, just look at your own hand. Look at, look at the, the complexity of human life. Look at the complexity of life broadly. Look at creation, right? We're talking about a God that made all these things. We're talking about a God so mighty. They don't understand the scriptures and the power of God. And part of what I'm telling you is, if, if you feel like you have not yet been able to glimpse the power of God, may I invite you to go to the scriptures. Because Jesus orchestrated, God orchestrated by this mighty power, 
all of redemptive history while including in his plans flawed, broken human sinners. And he started that whole thing. I mean, all the way, this is, this is how powerful a God we have. All the way back in Genesis 3, right after our first parents sin in the garden, he gives a promise. He says, the seed of this woman one day is going to crush the head of this serpent. And then he meets up with this old man in the desert and his old wife and promises them a son, Abraham and Sarah. And that son, she laughs at first. They end up calling him child of laughter, Isaac, because of the irony of the situation. And Isaac has a son named Jacob, who, after lots of experiences in his life trying to do things in his own strength, ends up in a wrestling match on the banks of the Jabbok. And what happens there is different than what happened here with the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, because Jacob, when he tangled up, when he locked up with God and started to wrestle and thought he was going to have his way in the thing, found out. All I can do is cling to him and ask for his blessing. See, what should have happened here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the rest, they should have come to the same conclusion Jacob did on the banks of the Jabbok. I'm not, I'm not going to wrestle this guy. I'm not going to win. But look at the compassion and the kindness of God throughout the scriptures that he will, if that's where you're at today, if you're not convinced by Jacob's story, if you're not convinced by how Jesus dealt with these guys and you still want to wrestle with God, guess what? He's so gracious and merciful, he'll let you. I'm just telling you right now, like, spoiler alert, here's how it goes. You're going to lose. Okay? It, this is God we're talking about. And then from the banks of the Jabbok, Jacob moves forward. He ends up having 12 sons. These are the 12 tribes of Israel who end up in a bunch of trouble, end up in famine. God, in his power, brings them, orchestrates events, even through the wickedness of Joseph's brothers, orchestrates events where that family comes into Egypt and finds safe harbor. But he doesn't let them stay there forever. He doesn't ever let them get to the point that they think that that some natural provider is going to be their God. And so Egypt treats them poorly, and then God says Moses, and Moses brings them out. God splits the Red Sea on the way out, takes his people out into a wilderness, by his power provides manna for them to eat, provides water from a rock for them to drink. By his power stays with them and leads them through 40 years of wandering. By his power gives them the tablets of the law. By his power takes those who trust him across into the promised land. By his his power establishes judges to rule by his power when they reject that and decide they want to be like all the rest of the nations. By his power, he allows them and gives them what they think they want, allows them to have kings. And then by his power, when they find out that that doesn't work and that ends up to as much trouble as any of the other plans they came up with, he sends them into exile. By his power, he brings them back. And, and, and that cycle goes and goes. And then by his power, he has his prophets write prophecies 700 years before the events would happen that one day coming from a virgin would be a son that was going to bring salvation to the world. And then by his power in Bethlehem, Jesus was born. And by his power, Jesus lived a perfect life. And by his power, Jesus died in our place for our sins. And then by his power, he rose from the grave. Our problem is we don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. And that was their power. That was their problem. Let's not keep making that mistake. Let's not keep coming with our feeble attempts to wrestle a God who made us. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, he's so patient. Even if you're not convinced, he will. And even as he's wrestling, he's going to be whispering to you, this isn't going to work. <laughs> I love you. This will go easier a different way. Come on. See, when you're that powerful, you're not, you're not intimidated by a challenge. He's not. So any questions you have, any struggles you have, any difficulties that you can't reconcile with a good and loving God, friend, I'm, 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 I'm joking about wrestling him and what the outcome is. I'm joking about it and I'm serious about it, but I also want to say God's not afraid for you to come and lock up with him. So if you need to, do it. He'll meet you there. And he'll only exert as much force as necessary to help you see to love you good. Amen. See, if they understood these things, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they would have never tried that pitiful move with the denarius. 
And all of these vine dressers would have never been so foolish as to think they could depose the owner of the vineyard. Because it's not just the vineyard that belongs to him. They belong to him. That's what we were shown through the denarius. That's what we were shown through Jesus taking this to. Well, whose image is on the coin, right? They, the Pharisees also didn't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Because if they did, they, they would have never been under the delusion that coming and tossing this little riddle about taxes that Jesus was going to do what they thought it was going to do. And, and here's, here's what I want us to see. There's, there's not much new under the sun, if anything. In a lot of ways, we have the same problem today as they did then. There are many who don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. They don't know that all the damage sin has caused to humanity doesn't mean we no longer bear his image. Many Imagine themselves as, as a coin that's, that's too scratched up, it's too muddy, it's too dirty, it's, it's, it's too far gone. They can't imagine this truth that the scriptures bears out over and over again, that God is looking for people who understand their brokenness and are humble enough to come to him and declare their need for him. Those are the coins he can take up and he can restore to a place of perfection. That he can bring to a place that they know <laughs> They have value and worth. We still bear his image. We belong to him. And the destruction that we have brought on ourselves through sin, it can be undone through the resurrection power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How sad it is that these Sadducees had pulled all these elements of they went to the religion buffet and pulled the elements that they thought they could use to control people. And the whole time, they, they, were, they were rummaging around these truths, the beauty of the power of God and the truth of his scriptures. And, and one of the things they left on, on the buffet, said, we don't need that to control folks, was the power of the resurrection. Paul said, if there's no resurrection, we should be pitied as believers, as followers of Jesus. This, this whole thing leads to... Guys, do you know that Jesus, the Bible says clearly, Jesus was the first one to be resurrected. The way he was resurrected, he was the first, but we're coming after him. That is the destiny for all of us. That is what God has planned for us. And so, yes, I understand that today we are living in the midst of the brokenness that's the result of just the fact that the world is not as it should be. There's a lot of brokenness and sin in the world broadly. We're all dealing with the consequences of our own sins. We're dealing with the brokenness of a world that assaults our bodies. We can feel ourselves slowly dying, right? As pain increases and as sickness, and we're dealing with all these different elements. But friends, we have hope because we do believe there's resurrection. We do believe there's an eternal glory coming. And we have the promise of God that even as we are traversing this difficulty, as we are traversing this landscape that is littered with the signs of the destructive power of sin, even as we traverse this, it's not that God said, hey, um, okay, here you go, and if you, if you can make it over here, we'll, we'll hook up again. No, that's not how God works. He said, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Part of what God has done in his gospel is taking us out of this position where we need to feel like we gotta, we got to sojourn to some place where his presence dwells. One of the beauties of what Christ has done in his gospel is by dying in our place, taking the punishment for our sins, and then rising from the grave and giving us a place to put our hope and trust. And for God saying that that is going to be, that's going to be the terms of justice. That's going to be the terms of salvation. For us now to be able to come to God, to be made clean, to be made righteous, because of faith in Christ, it allows us now to have this incredible privilege of having the Holy Spirit of God dwell in us. He's with us. God's plan was always, and that's, that's, you don't know the scriptures and the power of God. If you're to go, it's, it's tough for us to try to put ourselves in a place of going back to Genesis, where, say, where Abraham was, and think about what it would be like trusting God with the information Abraham had access to. 
(laughs) But friends, here we are today, seeing the fullness of God's plan of redemption unfold through time. The crescendo being Christ appearing as was foretold, doing what God said he would do, showing us a glimpse of the character and the beauty of God, the, the greatest view we have this side of eternity of who God is, how good he is, how worthy he is of our trust. And because of all of this, we're not just looking forward to someday in eternity. We know that we have empowerment from on high to live now, to live in victory like we sang earlier, to live full of joy. What, what, what does that mean? Does that mean everything's going to go the way I want it to? Oh, friends, no, 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 no. It means that we have a joy that supersedes circumstance. We have a joy that doesn't require for us to understand exactly how God's doing all that he's doing, but it allows us to rest and trust in faith that he is working, and he is working for our good, and he's going to be faithful to every promise he's ever made to us. And that allows us, we can, we can rest in that, which allows us to acknowledge humbly, I don't know what's going on all the time. <laughs> Am I the only one that knows that's true about myself? I don't know what's going on all the time. I can't tell you exactly how God's working good in a bunch of stuff that I'm dealing with right now. But I I can tell you this, because I I see the power of God and because I see the power of God through the scriptures and because of his faithfulness to me thus far, I I can trust him. And friends, I hope you can too. I hope you won't find yourself, as many do, trying to rationalize your way out of trusting in this good God. And I hope those of you who maybe aren't tempted in that way, at least not much, you are secure. You you see the arc of redemptive history. You see what God has given us, the gift he's given us in the scriptures. You understand the power of God unto salvation. I'm hoping you then, dear friends, those of you who are disciples and followers of Christ, you will not shrink back in fear, but you will move forward in love to engage those who are still struggling this way, who no one has yet shown them the scriptures or the power of God, or how all that goes together and brings hope for every man and every woman. I'm hoping, dear friend, that you will move forward in the power that God provides to share this great hope, to share the beauty, the truth of God's gospel. How can we not? Because there are, th- there are those today, that they don't get to walk up to Jesus on the streets in Jerusalem or in the temple and challenge him with questions about taxes or questions about a lady married seven times and all her husbands died. They don't, they don't get to do that, but there are, there are many, many people who are out here wrestling with God. They're out here wrestling with God because nobody ha- either nobody has yet taken the time to show them the scriptures, the beauty and the power of God, or Somebody has, and they're, they're still in a place of just, they just can't get to the place where they believe they can trust him. And friends, that's why, <laughs> that's why in Revelation it says that we, we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. You have been given, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you have a story. You have a testimony. You can take the power of God that we see through the scriptures and say, hey, but the power of God doesn't stop here. It's not just a historical, but God just wasn't powerful then. He's not just, it wasn't just then. Let me tell you about what he's done in me. Let me tell you my story. Let me, let me tell you where, how hopeless I was, how broken I was, how self-righteous I was. Let me tell you how much I was trusting in my own goodness. Let me show you the scriptures and the power of God. The scriptures and the power of God are enough to bring into the ring. That's what Jesus said the problem was. Guys, here's your issue. (laughs) All these moves you're trying on me, here's your problem. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Let that not be said of us, friends. May our hope be firmly planted in the power of God that we see revealed in the scriptures. It all goes together, you see. And may we go in that hope, committed to the process, to the beautiful mission of sharing that hope with others. Praise God. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you 
Thank you for Mark 12. Thank you for not being scared to wrestle. Thank you for making sure it was recorded that we could see. That as people come to you and, and they, they throw these riddles, they throw these arguments thinking that they're going to somehow prove that you're false or can't be trusted. You're not worried about any of that, Lord. You got an answer for all of it. You're, you're the master. Lord, we, we acknowledge to you now that even, even those of us who have trusted you by faith, sometimes we get pulled into these things. And, and it doesn't maybe even mean that we're struggling with trusting you, but sometimes it's these riddles. Sometimes it's these, it's these hypotheticals that people throw out to try to detract from your glory or your trustworthiness. We let these things cause us to cool off in our passion for sharing your gospel, for sharing your power and the truth of your scriptures. And so, Lord, we, we repent for that tendency. Lord, may we remember that you, in the power of your Holy Spirit, you are with us. And so, if we're to move forward in boldness, love-motivated boldness, in sharing the hope that comes in you, and we find ourselves in a situation where somebody smarter than us or somebody that's been practicing their argument longer than we have tries one of these moves, tries to pin us down, Lord, may we trust that in those moments you will give us the words to say. You will speak through us. Father, let us, let us not fall into the foolish belief that this is, any of this is going to be done in our power. Whether it be walking out our journey on our own. We, we, Lord, we can't do that without you. We can't even maintain ourselves without you. We need your power to do that. And Surely we're not going to be able to help anybody else in our own strength. But Father, I ask that, I know there's different people listening to me right now. There's people that they hear this, they get it. They have a deep desire to participate with you in revealing to the world your power and the truth and beauty of your scriptures. And for them, Lord, I ask that you would meet them where they're at and you would supply that need and you would help them to fulfill that desire. I know there's some within the sound of my voice that if they're honest, they don't yet. It hasn't stirred in them that desire to share the truth of how good you are and how worthy you are to be trusted. And God, for those, I ask that you would stir that. I ask that you would come and, and move in their hearts and minds and show them the greatest privilege that any human could ever have <laughs> is to participate with you in your mission of sharing the beautiful good news of the gospel with as many people as possible, of loving people and opening to them the possibility of spending eternity with you. Thank you. Thank you that you're patient with us, Lord. We need that. Thank you for being with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.